today. Some champagne calcio for our Golazzo end of season party with my Freddie and the Dreamers. Or what happened the last time the old Lady Juve went for a Maverick manager? Hello, everybody, and hello once again. It's been too long, Gabriele Marcotti and James Horncastle. Hello, James. Hello. Hi. Yeah, sorry about that pause, listener, because, uh, you know, the season went and finished and some playoffs happened and all sorts of stuff. We've kind yeah. of done what Juventus did, which was take the last five weeks of the season <laughs> off. <laughs> nice. So. Speak nice. for yourself. <laughs> and pretty much everybody in the top half of the table got rid of a manager and started looking for a new one. There's loads for us to talk about. And one story, I guess, has been maybe dominating the coverage. It's been what Juve are going to do now that Max Allegri is not going to be in charge anymore. Maurizio Sarri seems to be the sensible choice, but there's still a kind of renegade part of the media that's insisting... You mean Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> insisting on another altogether less credible idea. Or two oh, yeah. less credible ideas. What we do know for certain is that a man named Fali Ramadani, who's an intermediary, has gone and spoken to Chelsea, as has Maurizio Sarri, saying, you know, I'd like to leave... Um, because I have an offer from, from Juventus. And Chelsea are saying, um, okay, we don't want you to go, but if you go, we're going to want compensation. So we're at the stage at where if you believe the traditional track of what is going on, it's simply a question of Chelsea agreeing compensation with Juventus, and then Maurizio Sarri goes. But it's not hasn't happened yet. Now, again, logically you say, well, it hasn't happened yet because... And Renielli's been really busy. He had the, the FIFA Congress and the UEFA meetings in Paris. He went to Baku as well. I can't remember. Why, why did he go to Baku? Because well, he went to Baku not to watch a game. Right. <laughs> he went to Baku for UEFA meetings. Uh, he is on the UEFA Expo. Right. Um, and he also happened to meet Bruce Bach, the uh, Chelsea chairman, when he oh, was right. there. Okay. Nervous times for Pep Guardiola as he waits to hear if he's going to get that opportunity <laughs> in, in Turin or not. Well, wasn't it supposed to happen two days ago? Yeah, yeah it was he yesterday. It was supposed to be announced it? and... Are we, are we going to tell the story now? Or, well, Because we're, we're, we're kind of on a roll. All right. All so, right. If you came for the Gigi My Freddy, stay with us, listener. Yeah. Because the Gigi My Freddy, the reason we're doing this, it, there's a, it's the obvious parallel with Maurizio Sarri. But so the mainstream media in Italy have reported that Maurizio Sarri is the guy. Fali Ramadani, I'll assume he's not going to listen to this, but has been talking on it continuously about how, yeah, it's going to be Sarri and I've arranged the whole deal. Aren't I clever? But they argue that no. This is all misdirection from Stadio. In fact, they're going to get Pep Guardiola. You know, when, you, when you say they, who are they? And, and what talking, kind of track record do they have in terms of getting predictions right? So we're talking about, it's a mixture of people on social media, Juventus uh, fan boards, some people who I think you might describe as being on the verges of mainstream media. One of them being this guy named Luca Momblano, who... I gotta say, I'd never heard of this guy until like a year ago. But no, me neither. I bumped into him in Villa Perosa. We did a yeah. YouTube kind of clip oh, nice. together. Okay. Yeah, he's he's a regular on a lot of like local radio stations. Now he's the first guy a year ago to have said, "Oh, Cristiano Ronaldo could come to Juventus," uh, and then of course he did. And he was also the first guy to say Allegri will definitely be gone. You know, at a time when Andrenelli was saying, no, 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 the cycle continues. Look, we're really, really young still. So he has a lot of credibility with a certain group of of Juventus supporters. Pep's wife was in Italy, uh, and we know this because she documented it on Instagram. 
Now, there's a story that she went to this leasing company in Turin and leased, was it a Maserati Ghibli? The story is that she went and she, she leased this car for a year in Turin. So then why would she possibly be doing that, you know? I don't know, but we don't know for certain that it was her, right? These are just things that, and then all sorts of sightings. And, okay. You know, they said Pep Guardiola was in this hotel called Principe di Piemonte, yeah. which, is in, uh, which is in Turin. Which is in a state of reconstruction at the it's moment. In, yeah, maybe he's hiding in the scaffold, <laughs> right? right? Cap, so Pep Guardiola is not going to. Well, Juventus. no, but but no, but but this is where the story gets more interesting, right? Every member of ma- mainstream media has gone out and they've checked the story. They've had Pep Guardiola's brother, Pere Guardiola, who's who's his agent, come out strongly deny it. There's this Italian dude who's the head of Piaggio, the guys who make scooters, who's on the board of Manchester City, who came out and strongly deny it. There's no logical reason why Pep Guardiola, frankly, would leave, except then you get into two other bits of the conspiracy. The first one is that Italian tax law is changing. So to reattract Italian talent from abroad. You could go, James. Yes, you could go. Right. People who've been taxpayers in Italy and go abroad for X amount of time and come back. It has to be back, two years, no? Two years what? You have to be outside the country two for or two more years. years. Yeah, two yeah. or more yeah. years. And then come back and they meet certain requirements, they're only taxed on 30% of mm. their salary. And if you Pep go to doesn't strike South, me as a man who's overly concerned about well, how much... Ta- but <laughs> it certainly helps Juventus pay for him, right? Because obviously Pep was an Italian taxpayer back when he played for Roma and, and Brescia. The other element to this, and here we get into this wonderful Italian word called dietrologia, right? Which is the conspiracy theory where there's always something behind it. The D- game behind the game. Yeah, essentially, and it is a wonderful word. It, uh, ology is the study of, and dietro means behind. So it's behind ology, basically. So the argument is this. Manchester City, as you know, have been uh, referred to the adjudicatory chamber of, the, of UEFA's club financial control body over... Right. Uh, violations of financial fair play requirements in the, between 2011 and 2014. <laughs> I know, I know. I tried to make it sound as boring as I can. So people look, oh, look, Andrea Agnelli is on the UEFA executive committee. Another Italian guy, Michele Uva, who all of a sudden is presented in the media as like Agnelli's mate. He's a UEFA vice president, and he oversees the EXCO committee that writes the financial fair play regulations. Aha. So the plan is Agnelli and Uva chuck Manchester City out of Europe. And so Pep has a clause in his contract with City where he supposedly can leave if they don't qualify for Europe. And then look, we're out of Europe. And so he's free to go and join Juventus without compensation. But when would that decision come through? This is one of the factors that makes it absurd. I mean, leaving aside the fact that if the clause is there and qualify for Europe, obviously did qualify for Europe, whether they're allowed to play or not has to do with a whole bunch of other factors. But Manchester City still have to receive the, the, the judgment. As we tape this, it's June 6. They still haven't come out with a decision. When they do come out for a decision, City will have the opportunity to go and appeal to CAS, the Court of Arbitration for Sport. All these things put together strongly suggest to me that this is all abject nonsense. The timing isn't there. Even if City are banned, it's not going to be before next season. But this story has taken on a life of its own. And it really is. Because it's, it's Pep. And Juventus' so share price keeps climbing and climbing and climbing, which, Gab, begs the question, if you're putting this story out there, you can get into some bother, no? This is a great point. There's always been something weird with Juventus's share price. If you look at the volume of trading of Juventus in terms of, so the number of people buy and sell Juve shares every day relative to other listed clubs, like, say, Manchester United or Borussia Dortmund, 
is absolutely enormous. For whatever reasons, Uvish share price gets day traded more than any other. Now, the fact that you get day traded, it, first of all, let's make it very clear, right? It doesn't really benefit Uve in any way, but it does suggest that there's a lot of people out there who say, oh, look, the price is very sensitive to news and you know maybe I can dip in and out and make some money. So one of the conspiracies is that there's people out there who are fueling this, who have bought a bunch of Uve shares, want to sell them at their peak, and then maybe short the price when it starts falling again, when PEP doesn't come. I honestly don't know, but what's happened is people on the web have become incredibly aggressive and incredibly harassing of the mainstream media, simply because the mainstream media is sticking with, with the Sari story. I don't think Saudi is a great fit for Juventus. And I think, I think they will take him, but I think Saudi is, is a plan B. I think their plan A is a different manager in the Premier League with a big contract. I think that manager is Pochettino. I think the reason Saudi hasn't been announced yet is they wanted to wait until after the Champions League final to take a strong, hard run at Pochettino. Obviously, Pochettino would be very expensive too and difficult to get out of Spurs and all this other jazz. But I think it suits Juve just fine that people are talking Saudi Guardiola We'll see whether they get Potch or not. I think that is their plan. I could be totally wrong. Well, that's fascinating. You mentioned the fact that Sadi, who's the probable replacement for Allegri, is not... He'd be a departure from the usual steely Juventus, no? The, the, the Juventus yeah, without style. without doubt. Their motto is winning isn't important, it's the only thing that counts. How you do it doesn't matter to well, you. It's a long motto, that. Before, How do they remember all that? <laughs> but it does all of a sudden seem to matter to Juve. Um, they obviously felt there were limitations to uh, Massimiliano Allegri's style. What I would say in terms of fit, if you look at everything that Juventus have done the last couple of years, they've tried to really rebrand the entire club. Literally. Be it the logo, be it next year's kit. And I think, you know, in terms of the manager as well, that all kind of folds into it as well. However, I do think it is not the most natural fit, uh, not only because of Sarri's past, you know, working for, for Napoli, but in terms of also, he's a tracksuit manager, a very kind of establishment club. Very you, sloppy. You think about um, how many people you have to keep happy at Juventus, and this is a guy who basically picks 11 players, plays 11 players. I think that's going to put a few noses out joint um, uh, as well. I mean, are you really going to be doing what Rafa Benitez did to Cristiano Ronaldo and telling him how to play a different way? or That's the obvious element in the room. It's not mm -hmm. a good match with the players. You'd have to play Cristiano at center forward, which he may or may not really want to do. And also you have all these old players. Like this is the, you know, people don't realize how old this Juve team really is. And, and then these are old players who've won things, right? Who are established players. It's harder, I think, to go and, and start teaching people like that. And in that sense, Pochettino makes a lot more sense because he can be more pragmatic. And Pep, hypothetically, would make more sense because obviously Pep is Pep. He has a level of charisma. Whenever Pep goes anywhere, you have to lay a lot of groundwork. You have to commit to spending a lot of money to basically shaping the team as he would like it. And I look at Juventus and at the moment, yeah, okay, there's talk about Pogba, there's talk about Milinkovic, but you look at how much money they've invested in Cristiano in fee, wages. You look at that wage, but at the moment... I don't know how they do it unless they have like a fire sale of Cancelo, Dybala, Douglas Costa, blah, blah, blah. This is a team that has a window of opportunity to win the Champions League. That window of opportunity is now, right? Everything has been built towards that. That was the logic with Allegri. That was logic with signing Cristiano, whatever. You get another three years of Cristiano. But if you bring these other guys in, these guys are project managers. These are guys are managers who you go in a completely different direction philosophically. It's going to take time and Cristiano doesn't have time. He wants to win now. So 
I think that's another big factor to consider. Well, big question marks then over exactly who will be taking over from Max Allegri. But with the likely advent of Maurizio Sarri to the uh, panchina at Juve, we are today taking a look back at the last time the old lady took a massive punt on a pretty unconventional manager. Ow. Yep, it's the summer of 1990. Great times, people have hair. Uh, Italy have just had a World Cup. And Italy's grandest, most august footballing institution has decided to get down with the kids. Out goes grey old Dino Zoff. In comes former champagne salesman and good time Charlie, Gigi My Freddy, a name that would soon become a kind of cautionary tale that managers would scare their club presidents with. A lot of this is to do with the fact that Arrigo Sacchi was wowing everybody down the road at, at Milan. To what extent is Gigi Mofredi a kind of John the Baptist to Arrigo Sacchi's messiah? In Italy and Germany at the time, everybody played with a sweeper and two markers, right? And that's what made Sacchi so revolutionary. Gigi Mofredi also played a straight zone like Sacchi. But one big difference was, whereas Saki had very athletic players who would, very skillful players, but guys who would go and press the opposition and win the ball high up the pitch and stuff like that. They'd do it intermittently, but it was very effective when they did. My friend, these teams didn't. So they just kind of had a, a back four that tried to catch you off sides. And then you had all these guys up the pitch who were just kind of standing around waiting for the ball. And that was one sort of problem. He crammed a lot of attacking players. He wanted to commit people forward. Mm. Four across the front. No, a front line of, of four players often. Huh? Yeah, the idea was if you've got four guys up there, then the other team has to hold their full backs back, right? Because you don't want to be in a one-on-one situation where you're under man, plus one, often two defensive midfielders. Because right. this this is still Italy at the time, right? So other teams would freak out and be like, whoa, you know, there's four guys attacking us. Well, we better defend with a goalkeeper and six guys and then you three guys at the other end, you guys deal with it. And that's what made it very effective. And it was effective because he'd risen up. His backstory is it's very unconventional. The, the comparison with, with Maurizio Sarri is in the fact that he starts out with these unheard of regional teams mm. and rises, rises, rises until he gets his big break. Yeah, it's quite a fascinating story in that he was in the youth setup at Brescia. He's from a little village around 20 kilometres outside of Brescia. And if you listen to him speak, actually, and close your eyes, you'll hear that accent, which is the same accent as Mario Balotelli. A casa fa, signora, sono Boniperti. E siccome io ho degli amici che facevano queste scale, fa, sì, va bene, io sono Sharon e metto giù, no? E questo, dopo un po' richiamo, fa, guardi, signora, che io sono Boniperti... Such a distinctive regional accent. Mm. And uh, three days, apparently, before he's due to make his first team debut for Brescia, he does his knee, and that's it, done. And one of the kind of strange things that he does is um, he starts coaching these kind of regional teams. He goes and becomes the assistant down at Crotone with Aronso Pugliese. And then he comes back and he decides, you know what, I'm going to found my own team be president of my own team and coach that team and it's called Real Brescia <laughs> don't look for it it's and not there anymore. it's not there anymore but I did not know how uh, interlinked his career was with that of um, Corioni yeah um, now Corioni um, was the president of Ospitaletto which is this little club that he gets into the was it the fourth division or third division again you probably haven't heard of it 
Corioni seems to want to invest in football and goes on to bigger and better things and he takes charge of Bologna um, and he thinks I'm going to bring my Freddy with uh, me. And this is the thing about Bologna at the time, they're in the second division. People probably don't realise what hard times Bologna fell on in the 80s because after what, giving Roberto Mancini his debut uh, at the beginning of that decade, they go down, they go down again, Leeds United style to the third division. They come up, but they can't get back into the top flight until... Gigi Maifredi comes with Corioni and his well he brings his champagne football with yeah, him yeah he, bring, he brings a, a bunch of players the Bologna fans are not overwhelmed by this uh, not least because he's never managed above the fourth division before they lose their opening game they don't lose again all season and go up to Serie A the first season up in Serie A his second season in charge they stay up the third season they get into the UEFA Cup it is extraordinarily successful and there are emotional scenes when at the end of that campaign, having received a phone call from Giampiero Boniperti, the, the, the man in charge of, of Juve, he's decided to take his big chance and take over at Juve. But there, there's floods of tears at the Dallara and, and, and all this. I mean, incredible success. Whatever happened after, and boy, did a lot of things happen after, he was hugely successful. Isn't it true, you, I know you've hung out with Carlo Ancelotti a lot, but Arrigo Sacchi, who's regarded as the the prophet, the guy who who revolutionised Italian football, supposedly stole all his ideas. Yeah, stole all his <laughs> ideas from my Freddy. Apparently, he watched tapes of Bologna, and in the in, in Preferisco la Coppa, the, uh, the the Ancelotti book, he quotes Sacchi saying, "But I see, dovete cercare di imitare Bologna di my Freddy, la squadra più bella che esista." Which, I don't know if that's true, but it's kind of remarkable that this guy was doing Saki before Saki. What's even more remarkable is, if you know Rigo Saki and you listen to him now, the fact that he would ever say somebody else's team was, was better than his <laughs> yeah. or, more, or more impressive than his. He'll give it yeah. to Pep. <laughs> the, 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 the story coincides to a point. Remember, 87-88 was the year that they were promoted from Serie B to Serie A. That was also the year that Rigo Saki won his first title with Milan. Right. So I buy that to a point. He makes this point that he was in the same class at Coviciano with Saki, with Zenik Zeman, and that um, the guys who were real revolutionaries uh, were the guys you probably never hear of anymore, which is Maifredi and right. Zeman, and that Saki, well, Gallione as well, but Saki essentially just like looked at what they were doing, took the best bits, because again, Maifredi's saying this, there's a lot of self-interest here, but he was like, ah, oh, Saki, before he saw my teams, he played with a libero, he played with a back three, um, it was only after he like saw what me and Zenek were doing, that he thought, yeah, I'll take the best of what the Czech guy's doing, I'll take the best of what uh, is doing, I'll mix it all together and create this great synthesis He's always asked, you know, are you the real revolutionary in, in Italian football? And what does he say? He says, yes, I am. Often in the third person, yes, my Freddy is. <laughs> the modifier. Right. So spring 1990, you've got the World Cup looming and a, a real facelift for all of Italian football that goes with it. You've got Saki doing incredible things at Milan and everybody's thinking we need a bit of this ourselves. Inter go for a Zona Pura uh, manager of their own and uh, Corrado Orico who's completely vanished from... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's on TV a lot in Italy okay. um, and he's kind of hilarious. But Boniperti well. calls yeah. up my Freddy and prepares this revolution. Dino Zoff, who that season would bring home a double with the Coppa Italia and the UEFA Cup as well, is, uh, is told to make so, way. Well, one of the remarkable things, when you said Giampiero Boniperti called him, and he, he may have, but one of the key figures here 
is another guy. It is Luca Cordero di Montezemolo, who is this extremely posh, blue-blooded. You know how, like, you guys love making fun of poor Jacob Rees-Mogg and the way he talks? Like, <laughs> he talks the same way. He's kind of, like, cut from the same cloth, only he's he's Italian. and He's very dashing as well, Montezemolo. He, he is probably, yes. He's, I think he, he's equally rail thin, but he's sort of... He's a lot, yeah. He's a, he's a lot better dressed, and he's a lot more handsome and, than. And Jacob he at Rousseau. the time was busy preparing. He was in charge of essentially right. Italia ninety. There's this YouTube um, video of I can't remember what TV show it is, but basically it's three journalists having dinner with yeah someone from football. And my Freddie's the guest this time, and he tells this story about being invited to the Germany England game semi final in Turin, along with Claudio Gentile and Marco Tadelli. They were part of this Kovacana kind of study group to study you know, different nations in football and they've been allocated Germany. Anyway, Montezemolo tells him, come to uh, the Dele Alpi, you can watch the game with us and invites him into the box that he's in. And he's there with uh, Bonnie Perti, but he's also there with Henry Kissinger, the president of Mercedes, uh, the president of uh, Fiat in Argentina, and the official language in that box is English. He doesn't speak a word of English. The only English he knows is corner, blue jeans, and teddy boys, apparently. And it's only when Gianni Agnelli's um, secretary basically says, um, do you not speak English? Do you want to speak Italian? That he's like, oh, thank, thank God, someone's here. You've saved me. And then after the game, there's helicopters, bizarrely, from Dele Alpi to Caselle, the airport in Turin. Um, they're all going to fly away to wherever they're going. And uh, that's when he has this final meeting to discuss his contract with Juventus, with so Agnelli, like, mm. Cesare Romiti, and uh, Montezemolo. And they said, look, it's a three-year deal. And as always happens with Juventus, with Boniperti, and you, you don't discuss how much you're going to get paid. You're just grateful for the opportunity. Um, and he says, well, I only sign one-year deals. Um, because, you know, ultimately, if it goes, if it's good, we'll, we'll extend. If it goes bad, I'll go. And, and Yeli apparently turned to him and said, so you're the kind of captain that would abandon the ship if it all goes wrong, would you? This is maybe yeah. his first mistake. Yeah. Um, this is such an Yeli kind of mind <laughs> smock move, isn't it? So Juve were busy making some changes. The, the switch from uh, Boniperti to Montezemolo, who wasn't even based in Turin. I think he was based down in, in Rome mm. and had a bunch of other things happening. You also had the club breaking the bank to bring in, for what I think was a world transfer record, Roberto Baggio, which gave them a pretty impressive uh, pool of talent up front. You had uh, Salvatore Schilacci, Toto Schilacci, who just... Top goal scorer at the World Cup. There you go. Baggio now... Uh, Gigi Casiraghi, the prince, and a young man from the outskirts of Rome, who <laughs> embodied Charlo, <laughs> embodied lo stile <laughs> Juve, pa- Paolo Di Canio, and and my Freddie basically is brilliant. We'll put them all on the field together. Not just that, but together with a Smurf-sized ah, Tomasino Hessler, Thomas Hessler, you know, freshly crowned Tomasino world champion. Yeah, I mean, it was it was such a top-heavy team that it wasn't even funny. And they were like, oh, but that's okay, because at the back... So he takes with him from Bologna two guys who are super likable people. One is a full-back named Gianluca Luppi, and the other one is the legendary Marco De Marchi, of course, who would go on in a globe-trotting adventure, which ultimately would take him to exotic places in Greece and, in, and, and Dundee as well. 
it wasn't the kind of classic defence, certainly, when you look at that squad. It wasn't, they had Julius Cesar there but and Taconi and goal, but it maybe wasn't the greatest defence they've ever had. And particularly with the kind of football he liked to play, that might prove to be a problem because having come from the, the most beautiful team that had ever existed, in Saki's words, at Bologna, this was to prove the biggest disaster in Juve history. He began with an Italian Super Cup against Napoli. Oh. Andrea Silenzi with was Andrea Silenzi. the line for Napoli. So they get beaten 5-1. 5-1. And I, I had this distinct memory as a kid about... I think Silenzi scored two goals in that game. I don't know how many Nottingham Forest fans listen to this podcast, but they may recall Andrea Silenzi for what he was. And he was basically a big guy who couldn't really play. And just Former kind of Italian international. Yeah, of probably like the three-cat variety. But I just remember him. He's like babbling like a kid. And he kept repeating like, I scored two goals against Juventus and I scored them with my feet. Look at this. <laughs> you should they, say that Napoli that year, they were champions. Right. Yeah, they also had Maradona and Chiro Ferrara. Well, this is the year when this is Gianfranco Zola's breakout ah, year. Ah, nice, yeah. Um, because obviously Diego is having some issues. More on that. Go watch Asif Kapalia's documentary, which is mm. out soon. But they put in one of the worst title defences, I would say, that you could... A curiously bad title defence. They finished though. eighth in 91. So to Wasn't lose 5-1 th- to that side, not a great look. Mm. Indeed not. Uh, And that wasn't the only not good look that was to follow in weeks to come. Uh, They exited the Coppa Italia, uh, the competition they'd won, to Taranto on the 12th of September, losing 2-1. And there's a a video of my Freddy. It's not great quality. I mean, as you can hear for yourselves, it's him basically berating the team at halftime when I think the scoreline's still 1-1. And then you got the scenes at full time when the players fired up by his halftime instructions had gone out and, and lost the second half and got knocked out of the competition. And the bizarre thing about it is he's ranting and kind of punching bits of furniture and the players are just wandering around going about their business, much like he looks like a friend of the owner who's wandered in by accident. He's pacing the dressing room with his in a suit, hands in his pockets, just listing off those kind of Italian insults that all begin with uncle. Um, so, so, yeah, and it doesn't seem to get any kind of reaction at all from right. uh, from the players. There were some good results, though, uh, and some very good results in that first half of his only season at Juve. Uh, they beat Inter 4-2. Would won the title, of course, two years previously. They beat Roma, who were a solid side, 5-0. Yes, Gilacci got a hat-trick, I think. Oh, very nice. Yeah. And they end the first half of the season in second place, only two points off the top. However, the second half of the season, they just blew up. They went 10 games without a win. They end up in seventh place until, certainly, Calciopoli. It was the worst season that Juve had ever had. 28 years. First time in 28 years that they didn't qualify for a European competition. We should mention in here the 6th of April, the Fiorentina game, where they travelled to Florence. And, of course, it's the first time that Roberto Baggio has been back to the Artemio Franchi. And the fans prepare this kind of emotional choreography of the skyline. They're under the curve of Fiesole. And emotional scenes as Juve get a penalty. Baggio refuses to take it against his old club. Col sinistro, Marecini in calcio d'angolo. Clamoroso dopo il rifiuto di Robi Baggio, sbaglia D'Agostini. He's subbed off by my Freddy, and as he makes this kind of 
lap of honor on his way as i mean he kind of has to do it to get to where the the entrance was in those days to the to the dressing rooms he, he somebody throws this fiorentina scarf and i mean the, the story is famous he picks it up and leaves the field with it abbandona il campo roberto baggio a robi baggio arriva una sciarpa della fiorentina dalla curva viola la raccoglie e se ne va con quella and my freddy afterwards basically gives him full support says no i respect baggio as a man for what he's done and when you look at why things fell apart i mean that dressing room scene certainly speaks to this notion that the players could not bear him there's also a, a theory i mean beyond the tactical imbalances that of his approach that he was so in love with baggio that yeah. the rest of the squad just yeah this is covered um there's an excellent bit on this in paolo di canio's book where he talks about you know arriving in turin and then Baggio's there, and all of a sudden, everything is about Baggio. And when the screws started to turn, even Maifredi, for all his orthodoxy and everything, he kind of realized, like, this isn't going to work. Either our attacking players start working harder, or I need to put out a better balanced team than this insanity that, that I've been doing. Nobody spared from having to work harder, except for Roberto Baggio. And that's when some players, include, you know, as you know, Paolo takes things very well. So... You know, he, he I, and Badger probably got on really well. I'm thinking two more similar, similar characters. <laughs> no, and he, he said like you know they, they they do these drills. You'd get the attacking players to to, to do these drills where basically because they weren't quite pressing, but they were just off the ball. He asked them to defend a little bit a little bit deeper and try to challenge attack, especially uh, it was it was attacking fullbacks one on one. So you know you'd get Gigi Casiraghi sort of lumbering over to try to do it. You get little Thomas Hessler. You get Paolo. And Baggio was like, no. And Baggio was like, stick out a leg, and the guy would just run past him. And he's like, I, I, don't, I don't do that, you know. And it would be just, oh, that's fine, that's fine. That sent a bad vibe throughout the team. There was also a period that season when, I think it might have been around the Fiorentina game, when Baggio was clearly depressed and not right in the head. When, you know, some players went to Mike Freddy and says, like, look, why don't you just give him a week off or whatever? And he's like, no, 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 like, you know, and... I don't think he had the personality to lead this team. I think he felt, honestly, as if I'm so fortunate to be here that I better do exactly what I think the club wants me to do. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point because I think you see these guys who do special things with provincial clubs, they get their first shot mm. in the big time. And when Gab was saying that, it immediately brought to mind Giampiero Gasperini when he went to Inter. Okay, Inter team that is... That was a zoo, though. I mean. Yeah, a zoo, but a kind of team at the end of the cycle. But a guy who initially goes in there and sort of is walking on eggshells trying to keep everybody happy. And they don't respond to his ideas and he's out within, what, three weeks. And it's interesting that Gasperini has been able to rebuild his career even after, what, the first two or three jobs after that were a disaster for him, mm. whereas my Freddy never was. And... You're right, James, in, in pointing out his relationship with Badger because in many wa ways it did define him and he allowed it to define him because when it's often brought up that, Gigi, you know, your team's played excellent football, you won the fourth division, you won the second division, but you didn't really win anything else significant and he just turns around and says, yeah, but I did get to coach Roberto Badger for a year. Well, at the end of that season, it is decided that he will leave, although, as he points out, he wasn't fired whether he decides to abandon a sinking ship or, or whatever, it was completely untenable, the pos position with the players, for whatever reason. He departs, and Juve decides to go with another revolutionary freethinker, <coughs> uh, young Giovanni Trapattoni, who comes in. I mean, it is interesting, uh, the, uh, yeah. the defence that my Freddy puts up 
uh, about that year at Juventus. And it sounds a little naive because he says it was a transition year. It's like, well, there are no transition years at Juventus. You have to win. Mm. We brought up the motto that they have earlier. And you know, he says, look, they hadn't won for a few years before me. It took them a while to win again. It wasn't until what Lippi came in that they were able to do that. It was, what, nine years in total. So it clearly, yeah, I made mistakes, but it wasn't all the manager's fault. Absolutely. And when you look at his career before that, he'd had extraordinary success, which led to him getting offered that job. The thing that really is hard to argue against is what happened to him in every single job he's done since then. So the next season, he goes back to Bologna, where he'd been such a success, uh, but is swiftly fired. That's the 91-92 season. So then he goes to Genoa in 92-93, hired and fired. In 94-95, he's hired and fired by Venezia and then Brescia, after having seven games in charge and losing all of them. That's Pescara, same thing in the following season. By 1997, he's in Tunisia. It doesn't work out there. Then he joins well, Albacete. He's coaching Esperance, which yep. is one of the super clubs, to be fair. But even then, he manages to screw it up. Okay, then he's at Albacete in uh, Spain. Uh, and by the, the new millennium, he's in Serie C1 with Reggiana. Uh, he gets fired there too. Becomes technical director at Brescia, has a brief stint of, let me see, seven days, is it, on the bench at Brescia after Giampaolo was fired by them. This is in Serie B. Yeah, he loses, and they replace him with Cristiano Bergordi, Gaza's former teammate at Lazio. Interesting. I mean, last I'd kind of been aware of him in, in, in kind of footballing circles was he had a team of players who would reenact goals on the Italian equivalent of Sky Soccer Saturday. Uh, you know, they couldn't yeah. show the goals. So they'd get his mob to, to enact them. But I think he's doing punditry and stuff now, is no, he? No, um, not, not anymore. He was, he was a kind of post-match analyst. And there's a famous kind of tete-a-tete argument oh, with, Chiro with, Ferrara. with Chiro Ferrara. My Freddy, again, kind of gives this impression of being this sort of misunderstood genius who's very happy to criticise um, from his ivory tower and Ciro Ferrari is having absolutely none of it. You go back to selling champagne. We never explained that. After mm. his meniscus had ruptured, he had a stint working for Veuve Clicquot as a kind of travelling salesman. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, this fits in with the Saki shoe salesman, mm. Malisani, you know, working for Canon. Copiers. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Let's just finish off here with a nice quote here from Gigi Mofredi. I and Zdenek Zeman, Zdenko, we're the real Zona Champagne. The others are only derivatives, including Saki. Arrigo used to play with five at the back. It was Berlusconi who told him to pass to a 4-4-2. He's convinced that the outstanding player must adapt himself to the blueprint of the manager. I, on the other hand, have always thought the contrary. Just ask my badjo. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. Hey everybody, we're back in colour in the present day. So much has happened since our last Galazzo. Juve, the champions. Napoli, Atalanta and Inter are joining them in the Champions League next season. Into the Europa League, Milan, Roma and Lazio as the Coppa Italia winners, beating Atalanta. Down go Empoli, 
with Frosinone and I'm sorry, Gab, Chievo, and make God, it even even worse for for Chievo. This is just rotten. It's the fact that Verona, their friends across the city, have come up along with Brescia and Lecce. That's the lineup for next season. Five of the top eight sides last season have changed managers. We've talked about the confusion at Juve. We do know who's going to be the new manager for the Nerazzurri at, at Inter, and that is James? Uh, Antonio Conte. Are the... we going to have a proper title race next season? Well, Conte <laughs> comes to win, ultimately. Um, you know, he did that Siena, he did that at Bari, he did it at Juventus, he did it at Chelsea. He's pretty much won wherever he's been, apart from Atalanta. Apart from Bergamo, where he's <laughs> hounded out of town. Out of Cristiano Doni. Yeah. <laughs> um, Not a good cultural fit. And you can tell they're recruiting for a win-now team because I know Gab thinks uh, Juventus are old, but wait until you see Diego Codin and Edin Dzeko playing for uh, for Inter. Yeah, it's clear that... Nicolo Barella is uh, likely to be joining them, though. He's a, he's a youngster. Yeah, but there's... You, know, you just know, though, they're going to screw that up. You just know that Barella's not going to come and they'll end up with, like, the older, injured version of, of Barella. They'll just, you know, pick up Montolivo on a free or some nonsense like that. I don't know. I, I just... I don't understand why Inter have, like, three guys. You've got Marotto, who's the chief executive on the sports side of the business. You've then got your friend Pierre Alcilio, Gab, and then you've got Pierre Alcilio's little man, Bacin. It's like, why do you need all these dudes? Gab, what do you think about Inter and uh, their prospects? I think Conte is a phenomenal manager. I'm not sure about when you've just come out of a financial fair play regiment. I'm not sure about all the spending on veterans and older players and the big wage bill. Obviously, I'd love the Barella signing if they can get it done. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just seems to me like this is not a team that's well run in terms of in terms of foresight. Lukaku had been linked with them repeatedly. There's a lot of confusion about where he might be going. You're saying no, Napoli. I don't know if they're not going to Jekyll and Lukaku. I mean, what they want Lukaku Inter do, yeah, and I Napoli mean, as well. Yeah, uh, well, no, I mean, I've been no. told that Inter definitely want Lukaku. Okay, it's just a, it's a, it's a case of of valuation. But it's um, one of those stupid things where they're like, oh yeah, we want Lukaku, and look, they want Perisic. You know, let's do a straight up spot. Yeah, okay, yeah, whatever. You know, like when when when, when Lukaku makes twice as much as Perisic and is four years younger, and I, I don't know, let's just go and replace one inconsistent malcontent for one who makes a lot more money. You know, I. I don't know. I'm very skeptical. All right. Speaking of uh, expensive malcontents, Paul Pogba, is he going to be returning to Turin? Well, he was in Turin, what, a couple of weeks ago? Did he hire any Maseratis? <laughs> no. For a whole year. He was at Andrea Bazzelli's, uh goodbye do. But look, I think it's fairly evident that Pogba wants out at Manchester United. Yeah, I mean, it's very clear what Juventus want next season in terms of uh, the midfield player. They've already got Aaron Ramsey, but the two players that they've apparently had talks with are... Sergei Milinkovic Savic, the reigning midfielder of the year after such a phenomenal season for Lazio and Pogba. Milan are going to have Giampaolo? Is that confirmed yet? It's not confirmed, but it's an appointment that I'd like. Okay, so um, he'll be coming in from uh, Sampdoria, Roma. He's a big Inter fan as well. Yeah. He? So. <laughs> and he's Mr. Charisma, isn't he? <laughs> Poor chap. I mean, it's an interesting appointment. Yeah, look... We don't even know. I mean, Milan have, as you know, the, the sentence came just yesterday from, from UEFA. They've got serious financial fair play issues. They decided, well, we're not going to look at the three seasons up until 2018, which is where the real problem is. Right. That's when the snake oil salesmen were there until the 2017 issue gets sorted out. And that's with Cass. 
fair enough. I just keep delaying. But this is a team that also probably lost about 80 million this year as well because they've made investments. I have no idea where they're going. They said, you know, we'll be smart. We'll we'll get young players and and and, and build them up and grow together. It's going to take a Herculean effort to undo all the damage that was done. Okay, Roma, meanwhile... They've been screwed over by UEFA in that judgment because essentially it means that they're going to have to not go on tour in the US, come back early for Europa League and play, what, three qualifiers just to get into the group stages. So Yeah, unless... Because they were hoping Milan would be kind of thrown out of Europe. And, and they could move up. They could move into the group stages. They are yet to secure their manager, Paolo Fonseca of um, Shakhtar Donetsk, is the likely man to take over from, well, interim boss Claudio Ranieri. And did Zerbi is the alternative. I, I think both are really, really talented managers. Mm. What you don't know is how do they fit into the Roma cauldron? They're getting a new director of football as well. Masara's leaving, right? Yeah, so Masara's resigned. They've they've lined up Petraki for a long time. Petraki was apparently in Madrid yesterday, but he's still on the contract with Torino, which I don't think they were too pleased that he was uh, in Madrid doing these, this deal for Fonseca. So yeah, he has to get out of his contract. A lot of people have to get out of their contracts. I see. Now, when I mention the teams coming up next season, Brescia, Lecce and Verona, you'll have noticed that uh, Palermo was not among them, despite the fact that they had seemed set to come up. Since we last spoke about Palermo, well, a lot has happened. And uh, <laughs> uh, there was the, the, the David Platt involving consortium. Then there was another consortium that was coming in, I think, of uh, American investors. And then I guess, my guess would be what happened was that Somebody actually did the due diligence on the books and found that they were full of very wrong things. And the Italian Federation ended up busting Palermo down to the third division for financial irregularities, for essentially having lied about their finances in order to be deemed capable of performing, you know, of being there for a season. When have we heard that before? (laughs) Which is, again, surprising that they they managed to get a license every year for the last two or three years, which is when all these supposed irregularities were going on. They have an appeal, I think, lodged. Well, so they haven't been relegated. now. So they were relegated to third division. They've got that thrown out. They've been given a 20-point penalty. Oh, right. Um, Okay. So they haven't been relegated. No. Okay. But they'll start (laughs) minus 20. They might be again, James. I don't know. but, But at the moment... They're in City B, minus 20 for the new season. Well, I actually think it was minus 20, and that points total has been levied against this year, which, again, just is pretty mind-boggling. So um, that would be... So, like, if you look at uh, you look at uh, this season's Serie B table, mm. you'll find that Palermo are down in 11th with 43 points, which obviously wasn't where they finished. Right. So, yeah, I'm guessing that that penalty has already been... Levy, okay. which is surprising. but And they're anyway. still in the hands of Zamperini? I don't know who owns Palermo, <laughs> right. James. I don't think Zamperini knows. I don't okay. think, no. All right, well, let's finish off on something which is a little bit more uplifting, and that is the news that after a long time, I'm trying to think how long it's been now, it's what, is it two decades or 15 years or something that the Della Valle's been in charge of Fiorentina? 17 years, yeah. 17 years. Yeah. yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? And they've been through some times themselves. They've made some mistakes, but they've also done some good things. Yeah, like restore the Colosseum and (laughs) stuff like that. They are selling uh, La Viola to a friend of yours, Gab. Rocco Comiso. Somebody I've spoken to. (laughs) Right. So he's uh, tell us about Rocco Comiso. So Rocco is from is he from Calabria? Calabria, yeah. yeah. So like all people from the south of Italy, he's a Juventus fan. 
Um, but he emigrated to the U.S. I mean, it's one of those incredible immigrant stories. Emigrated to the U.S. when he was very, very young, couldn't speak the language, um, went to Columbia University in New York City on a full scholarship. On a football actually, scholarship, I think. No, on a, no, no, I believe he was... No, that is a lie. Who is it? The, honestly, <laughs> the amount of nonsense that's been written. I've heard people say like, oh, look, he's a TV entrepreneur and he's an, he doesn't. He owns a cable company. He lays right. cables to your house. He's not Mr. Showbiz. Ivy League universities do not right. offer athletic scholarships. Oh, no way. So he did play football at Columbia University right. and did very, very well right. um, to the point that then he paid for the stadium, which is... Named now that. named after him. Um, but no, he's he got an academic scholarship. He's he's a super bright guy. Made a bunch of financial sector investments at first, then laid down cables, was very smart about the way he did that. Uh, bought the New York Cosmos, sued MLS to try to get um, to try to introduce promotion and relegation into the US system, tried to buy Milan uh, from the snake oil salesman. Obviously, he couldn't because the guy didn't really own it. So, but whatever. That's a whole other issue. I don't know if it's actually 100% ink dry official, but it's just about done yeah. for him to take over Fiorentina. And I think it's a really good thing. And Fiorentina, they're getting the band back together. It's the Seti Sorelli again. Well, I thought the Della Valles played quite an interesting card, what, the day before the takeover was supposed to get concluded by putting out a statement saying, we are not selling Federico Chiesa. Chiesa mm. will be playing for Fiorentina next year. And obviously then... The club changes hands. Will that status remain the same with uh, with Rocco Comiso? Because it's clear that I think Chiesa has also Fali Ramadani as an intermediary for Fiorentina, agreeing personal terms with Juve. They laid a big giant pile of turds on <laughs> Rocco's head because this is their, their their parting gift. Remember when you sold your old flat, James, and before you did that, you defecated on the sofa <laughs> and in the fridge so and it's stuff. The Gus right? Poirier Brighton. Exactly. Sorry, right. Yeah. Um, so. Basically, they put him in an impossible position. People know that Rocco is a Juventus fan, right? right? From from childhood. So now, because Chiesa already has a deal in place with Juventus, now he's stuck in the situation where he either gives Chiesa a massive pay rise or, or, or somehow goes and like really impresses Fali Ramadani. Or no, even if he sells him for 300 bazillion bazillion, to Fiorentina fans, who are not the most rational, will be like, ah, look, the first thing you do when you come here is, you know, you sell Chiesa to the club you support. You know, it's it's Agent Rocco who's secretly working for Gianni Agnelli. You know, this will be the narrative. Well, I look forward to summer of that. And other things too, under the Umbrelloni. We will reunite soon for more Golazzos. Will we? Yeah. Are we coming back? Why not? If there's a city I have to talk about. We're there to do that talking. Uh, meantime, many thanks for everything this season again, Gabriele. No, pleasure. And you, James Horncastle. Pleasure as well. And thanks also to producer Charlie. And listener, do enjoy the summer. If you're missing us, go back and listen to all those old Galazzos because they don't really go out of date. In fact, they improve on repeated listening, I find. Uh, anyway, we'll be back at the end of the summer. <laughs> Until then, from all of us here, it's Arrivederci. Gabrielato, di calcio, italiano. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. <laughs>